Hello, people. Uh, Looking forward to getting into that passage with you in a moment. But firstly, I do have some very sad family news to share with us. That is that Emily McLaughlin has tragically died just over a week ago. Uh, You might be more familiar with her maiden name, Emily Walter, uh, daughter to Martin and Michelle Walter, who... Uh, with the three girls, have been at EV for so long before then heading over to Peninsula, Grace Church over there. And uh, Sarah, her sister, is with us in the morning. In fact, she's just been serving in the creche. And uh, and Christian, her husband, is with us. Uh, We love you. And his mother, Margaret, who have been with us. Uh, There is so much pain being felt in the family, and so bring this to your attention that you might pray to God for them. There will be a service on Thursday. Emily was a follower of Jesus and had entrusted herself to him as the resurrection and the life. And so we grieve along with the family but not as those without hope. For she is with and she now knows better than we do, her Lord Jesus. So let me take a moment now to pray for the family, for us, as we then jump into a very timely word of God. Let's do that. Lord God, you are a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. And we ask that you might be a deep comfort to Emily's family, the kind of comfort that only you can provide, the kind of comfort that in among so many emotions and reactions brings peace beyond understanding. Please do that by your word and among your people. Might we love and walk with the family well that you might use us to be your hands and feet to speak your words to them. For those of us who have death near us in other relationships or for whom it's, it's still a deep pain and scar, we ask please for the same comfort and particularly as we come to this word that you have so kindly lined up ahead of time for us this morning. We want to ask that we may not just hear things and and nod along and agree with things, but that you might give us faith. That you might give us the kind of faith that clings to Jesus and has our lives changed, transformed by him. Uh, And so for this to happen, Lord, we depend on you to work powerfully by your spirit ask that you would do that, please. Amen. Well, as has been said, we are tracking our way through the Gospel of John and we are halfway through the journey, which we figure will take about four years. It's got stops, right? So how long, how long, when will we be there? We're halfway. And so as we are halfway, it's worth remembering, particularly what John has held out for us, where where he wants to take us, the big point of it. Let me ask, stick your hand up if you're one of those people who gets a brand new novel and you turn to the very last page and read the very last sentence. 
I see some nods. You're too embarrassed to put your hand up. So you should be. <laughs> I do not understand you. That seems crazy. Uh, I can't even deal with the Netflix kind of titles that, you know, skip ahead. Oh, I just... Uh, now, I reckon that's crazy unless you're reading the Bible. And not because it, part of it's written in Hebrew, but particularly as you come to the Gospel of John, he actually tells us right at the end where he wants to take us. At least the, the big point of all that comes in the journey. So it's helpful for us to remind ourselves, or maybe you are new to the journey, to check this out. It's up there, chapter 20, right there at the end. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. He's been very intentional and selective about what he has recorded. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. John has recorded for us what he calls seven signs. We might call them miracles, but he uses the word signs, along with other material. But he tells us why it's here. It's so that we might know who Jesus is, that we might have life in his name. Now, let's be very clear up front about what this life that is on offer is and isn't. This is not some ancient self-help book. As though come to the guru Jesus and just mix a little bit of Jesus into your life, a bit of Jesus-flavoured life to make your life better. It is not that at all. It's a much bolder purpose that John writes for. It's that his readers might actually come to know life. Or more starkly, that his spiritually dead readers, and soon to be physically dead readers, might actually come to know spiritual life and then physical life. Knowing this purpose for John writing is key as we turn to the seventh sign that he records for us, the raising of Lazarus. This is not just some interesting story that happened, it has a purpose. And so my plan is to take us through the account through three scenes under three headings bearing this in mind, what John records it for. Number one, we're going to see that in love... Jesus delays. So helpful to have a Bible in front of you. So if you don't bring your Bible to church, can I encourage you to do that? If you don't have one, go to the welcome barrels in the bags. We will give you one. Helpful for you to be looking at these words for yourself. Verse 1 begins, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. So it starts with the fact of the sickness of Lazarus. Now we know from just reading a little wider in John that Jesus is some 150 kilometres away from this village of Bethany. I've got a map here to show you this happened in real places. And so you've got Jerusalem over here and Bethany where uh, Lazarus and Martha and Mary, the family, it's just to the east of Jerusalem. But it can be confusing because there's a second Bethany in the New Testament over here on the other side of the Jordan River. This is where John the Baptist was baptising people, and this is where Jesus is. So he's about 150 k's away from where Lazarus lays sick. Now the other key thing for us to see here is just how special, how dear Lazarus and his family are to Jesus. Look at verse 3. News came to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Verse 11, Jesus refers to Lazarus as his friend. Verse 36, the watching crowd comments on how much Jesus loved Lazarus. But I want you to notice what this love looks like in this account, and it's surprising. 
maybe even a little shocking. See, Jesus is some two days' journey away from Lazarus. Have a look at verse 4. When he heard of his sickness, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Sometimes it's the smallest words that have the biggest impact in sentences. I want you to notice the little word, so. Jesus hears of Lazarus' sickness. He loves him. He loves his sisters. Verse 6, so he stayed where he was two more days. Notice that the action of verse 6, the delaying of the visit to the family, is a consequence of verse 5, his love for the family. Now, what's going on here? On the face of it, many might actually question Jesus' love for the family. It was two years ago when I got word that my father-in-law was about to die. I was up here preaching. He lived in Port Macquarie. And so I preached one of the quicker sermons that I've preached. We jumped in the car, we head straight up to Port Macquarie, and thankfully we got there in time to say goodbye. For us, we figured that love looked like just getting there as quick as we could. There's nothing I could do, of course, except speak words of comfort. Yet here's Jesus, who actually has the power to do something for a man on his deathbed, who just stays where he is. Why? This is all the more weirder because as we've been reading John, we've seen him heal a sick boy near death, chapter 4. To heal an invalid who's been an invalid for 38 years, chapter 5. In chapter 9, he restored the sight of a man born blind. All of these people were strangers to Jesus. And yet here is Lazarus, his family, whom he loves. And he stays where he is. In love, Jesus delays. This provides an important insight about Jesus' love for his loved ones. The biggest thing that Jesus wants for the family that he dearly loves is actually tucked away in verse 4. It's possible for us to just skim over it, but look at it there. He says to his disciples, This sickness will not end in death, no. It is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. In love for the family, the biggest concern that Jesus has for them is that they may know His glory. Not that they may know happiness and comfort in the moment and in the way that they want it. This is hugely important. In love for these people, Jesus has the biggest concern that they might see his glory, which, by the way, is to see God's glory. To see God's glory is to see the Son's glory. Bigger concern than their happiness, their comfort in the moment and in the way that they want it, even if it's a good thing. Jesus has announced to his disciples that there will be a happy ending for Lazarus. 
but there will be suffering first. And even the miracle that will come to that relieves the suffering is not the big thing. The big thing is coming to behold Jesus for who he truly is. To behold his glory. We call out to the Lord for all sorts of things and rightly so because he asks us to do that. All sorts of little things and bigger things, the little things in my home, maybe your home this week, particularly with school starting and new schools and new grades. Lord, please help, please help my kids through all of this stuff. And that's right. But then there's the really big things that we call out to the Lord. Lord, heal my child of their mental illness. Lord, would you bring my wandering child back to yourself? Lord, would you, would you help me as my family falls apart? Lord, would you help me in my loneliness? Lord, would you provide work for me? And among us who cry out to the Lord of these things and other things, that there are some of us who, who have stories who can testify to the Lord's merciful intervention, that he has answered those prayers. And then among us, there are numbers who say, the Lord still delays. Why does he delay? Well, not because he doesn't love. This account makes that plain with this family. He has a bigger, the biggest goal in store for those he loves, that you might know his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. And the Lord delaying our happiness, our comfort so often is the means to actually behold his glory in a way that we might not have otherwise. It humbles us, or it ought to. We we realise we're not bulletproof, we're weak. It drives us to pray in a different kind of way. You know, the, the kind of praying until you're really praying, Uh, the the dependent, urgent, crying out to the Lord prayer, and so actually draws us deeper into the relationship that he's brought us into, that we might know his glory. Here we have actually quite a striking thing, that Jesus loves the family, yet in love he delays. He has a bigger goal in mind. Now we take a step closer to it in the second scene where we see that in love Jesus promises. Verse 17 opens up the next scene where Jesus joins the grieving family four days after Lazarus' death, with Martha coming to him. Verse 21, Lord, she said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Martha comes to Jesus with a, a, a whole mix, no doubt, of emotions. There's grief and there's hope. There's something of a confidence in Jesus, who, verse 23, said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She repeats the commonly held Jewish view that there would be a great final day when the Lord would raise his people from the ground, bodily, physically, an end-of-the-age resurrection. And it's into this response from Martha that Jesus makes this 
towering claim about himself. Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Wow. Can you imagine going to Hoyts this afternoon? You want to take your kids, your spouse, your partner to the movies and you walk up to the, the pimply teenage kid behind the counter and you ask for two, four tickets to go see whatever movie, Avatar. And the teenager says to you, I am the movie. <laughs> I am Avatar. <laughs> yeah, whatever, kid, just give me the tickets. Let me go see the movie. It's hard to, it's hard to just capture just how big a claim Jesus is making here about himself. Where he's not just saying, I am a ticket to the hope of the resurrection. He's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. I embody it. It is summed up in me. Now, Jesus isn't a pimply teenager. He is an impressive man, actually, as you're reading through. But he is a man. How can some 30-year-old man make such a big, towering claim about himself? And then he puts the most direct question to Martha, verse 26. Do you believe this? Jesus takes us here into the heart of what us having a knowing resurrection life will require. Do you want resurrection life? Do you want all that Jesus offers? Well, Jesus says, do you believe? It's going to involve belief, believing. So what does that mean? What does it mean to believe? Well, in part it's answered by verse 23, where Martha responds, so verse 27, Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And we remember John's big purpose for writing, that we might know who Jesus really is, that we might have life in his name. Having this resurrection life clearly involves believing things about Jesus. Believing that he is who he claimed to be, who the witnesses present him to be. But, but this belief, this faith, this having resurrection life, it's fuller than merely believing that he is who he claimed to be. So it's possible to come at Jesus, to come at this account, say, and see that Jesus is really just kind of offering a survey, and as long as I tick the right boxes, I'll have resurrection life. As if it's a survey that says, do you believe Jesus was the Messiah? Yes or no? Yep. The Son of God? Yes or no? Yes. Do you believe there is a life to come after this one? Do you believe there's a heaven? Yes or no? Yes. And think that by agreeing with all these things, I've done what Jesus is calling me to, which is to believe that stuff. But actually, the faith that Jesus calls for, it's no less than believing that stuff, but it's fuller, it's richer, there's more to it. Thinkers, Christian thinkers down through Christian history have summed up biblical faith as having three dimensions to it. Number one, knowledge. 
It's an understanding of content that is presented to you. So, so I need to hear or read or in some sense uh, engage with this content in a way that I can understand it. In this case, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. There's knowledge, the first bit. The second dimension is assent. So that as I come to understand this content, this knowledge, I now have a decision. Will I agree that it's true or not? Will I give assent? The third dimension of biblical faith, they've described as trust. Where I now know things and I've made a decision to accept them as true, but now will I trust? And will I trust, will I act in such a way that I put skin in the game? Will this actually matter and mean something for my life? This man walked across a tightrope, suspended 100 metres above the Great Wall of China. No harness, no net, no safety anything. He's got his mate down there with him too. Can you imagine being there and witnessing this among the crowd, seeing this man walk across this tightrope? No harness, no safety. Imagine cheering him on, being entertained by it as he goes back and forward. And then he actually goes and grabs a big sack of potatoes and sticks it on his shoulders. And he goes back and forward. And you're like, Ray, this is awesome. And then someone in the crowd goes, hey, stick someone on your shoulders and do it. And you're like, yeah, great idea. And then the man looks at you and he goes, all right, you're first. <laughs> well, now we'll see what my knowledge and my agreement actually mean. Is it of an order that I would actually trust and trust my life to a man and get on his shoulders? This is why Jesus doesn't just call Martha to believe that he is the Messiah. He does. But look closely at verse 25, where Jesus says, The one who believes in me will live. 26. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you see that third critical dimension to faith? It's believing in Jesus. Not that he existed, that he was a man of history, but in trusting yourself your life, your eternity, to this man. Stepping onto his shoulders on the tightrope, trusting that he's got you. Belief in Jesus rests upon belief that Jesus is who he claims to be. It's a full understanding of faith. We need to understand who he is, that he is that one. And our belief in him rests upon that. But it must have belief in him. It's what he calls Martha and everyone to take that critical step. Promising resurrection life to all who will. There's the second scene with the second heading that in love Jesus promises, huge promises. And calls us to what? A good response, a right response to the promises are faith. Here's the third scene with the third heading that in love, Jesus acts. On the one hand, and primarily, Jesus expects to be taken at his word. 
As he speaks, as he speaks truth, he expects to be taken at his word, particularly given who he is. He's gracious also. And in a few chapters' time, in chapter 14, verse 11, we'll see that he says to his disciples, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Believe me when I say I am the eternal Son of God. But then he goes on to say, Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Isn't that a gracious extension of Jesus' call to trust? Look, Believe me when I say, I can be trusted in what I say, but look at my works, look at what I've done to see if they back up what I am saying. Actually, in chapter 11 here, where he prays to the Father before the great miracle, Jesus says, verse 41, Our Father, thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus says, take me at my word. And he acts in a way that we might validate his word in one sense. The first act that we see here is actually quite surprising. It's a little weird when you really slow down and think about the account. It's there, verse 35. Having come to the place of the tomb, Jesus wept. The shortest verse in our English translation of the Bible. Jesus wept. Now, why is that surprising? Why is that weird? Well, back at the start of the account to the disciples, verse 4, he said, this sickness will not end in death. And he said to Martha, your brother will rise. And he knows, not just at the end of the age, he knows where this is going. He knows what he's about to do. So why is he here at the entrance of the tomb weeping? For two reasons. Firstly, He empathises with the grieving. Verse 33 tells us, When Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. As Jesus finds himself among the grieving of those who have lost a loved one, he's not cold to it. He's not immune to it, though he knows where this is going. He weeps along with those who are grieved. We remember well that in Hebrews, as we saw last year, that Jesus is our empathetic high priest. That the Lord God knows what it is to be us, to be made of this stuff, to live in the world that we do. But there's a second, and I want to put to you a much bigger reason for Jesus weeping here, and it's anger. See, this is originally written in Greek and helpfully translated into English for us, but a legitimate trans- translation could be that when Jesus saw this, he was outraged in spirit and troubled. He's outraged. He's, he, he, he's angry. Why? He's outraged at the presence of death. And this fits, this makes sense as we pull back and consider who this Jesus is as we remember what has come previously in the journey of John. Where from the very beginning, do you remember in the prologue, that this Jesus is the one who was with God in the beginning. Who was God in the beginning. 
who through him all things were made. The galaxies, the most intimate and intricate of creatures. That in him was life itself, not just a conduit to life. He, he is life. And Jesus, with his Father, has made the world, made it good, very good, delighted in it. And yet here is an intruder. A devastating intruder that has worked its way into every corner of his creation through every single generation an intruder into every single one of our lives the intruder of death that great enemy of relationships that horrific full stop that we dread See, death, as we've come to know it, is not actually a part of God's good creation, but rather a result of human sin, of humanity throwing God off and choosing to play that job ourselves. And so God rightly and justly bringing a judgment upon such rebellion, which is the judgment of death, spiritual death. Cut off from relationship with the God that we were made for, the God who is spirit. Physical death that testifies to that spiritual death. But look at what we see here. The eternal Son of God weeping at the tomb of his loved one. Outraged, weeping over the separation that sin brings about from God and humanity, from loved one to loved one. And so I just want to remind us and give permission to us that as we experience death in our lives, loved ones around us, and experience and go through that whole range of emotion, as you feel anger and outrage, there is something absolutely right about that. That Jesus joins us in that outrage. What is this thing? It's such a rip-off. Anger in and of itself does not need to be sin in our sin, in our anger, do not sin. But here we have Jesus, the perfect man, outraged. It is right. Not that we try and excuse it and justify it and romanticize it, but it is right that we go, this is not right. Death is a booming announcement that all is not right with our world, that it is not all sunshine and rainbows. If you let your kids watch Disney, seriously, as I do, but seriously, be on that. Having conversations with your kids about this lie that they are fed. Something is deeply broken and our physical experience of death points us to the deeper problem, a spiritual deadness. And here we have Jesus weeping. But he does more than weep. And praise God that he does. Yes, he empathises. Yes, he's outraged that he's here. But he's here to do more. Verse 43 gives expression to it in this family. As Jesus, verse 43, called out in a loud voice, Lazarus! 
come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth wrapped around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Can you imagine being there? Imagine being part of the family and having your loved one, Lazarus, restored to you. Can you imagine the joy of having him in your arms again? This is an amazing miracle. Yes, a sign, as John will call it. Maybe you're sceptical about this. Dead people don't rise. Here's the thing. Jesus' very first sceptics, they didn't deny the reality of this great miracle. See, there are those we are reading about them. We're going to read on in the next coming week and chapters. There are people who hate Jesus. They're sceptical about who he is. They want to put him to death. Now they have to come up with a plan to put Lazarus to death because on account of what Jesus has done with Lazarus, more and more people are coming to Jesus. Not even his first original sceptics could deny what they saw. But as great as what they saw was, it's not the greatest miracle. Because if you think about it, it was a temporary resurrection. Joy restored, yes, but think about it. Lazarus had to die a second time. His family had to grieve for him a second time. Knowing that they weren't about to receive him again immediately. Because Jesus had already displayed his final glory. Yes, this is quite the sign, but there's the thing. It's a sign. It's intended to point us to the greatest miracle. Because Jesus is here not just to weep over death, but to deal with what lies at the very heart of death as he dies on the cross. As he takes upon himself the right judgment of God for sinners like me. That he would deal with the punishment fully and finally it would destroy him but that in turn, I might be forgiven. I might be restored. Three days later, Jesus was raised to life, bodily, physically, publicly, repeatedly, demonstrating that he is who he claims to be, the God of life. The one who has power over death. Flick back to chapter 10 there. You see in chapter 10, verse 17. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And in the resurrection of Jesus, we see that Jesus walks his talk. Do you want to know the solution to your death? He's right here, demonstrating it in his action. For all those who would believe in him. I had the privilege of preaching this truth at a funeral this week. And I tell you, if I think every week if I went to a funeral it might be too exhausting, but every fortnight, if I was able to go to a funeral, oh, that would be good for my soul. That would be good for my life. Why? Because... Because at a funeral, it's one of the very few places that us 21st century Westerners who have done all we can to keep death out of sight, 
and to romanticise it when it does pop in. But it's one of those moments where as, as hard as we try, we can't fake it. We can't dodge it. When there's a box sitting down there, or at least when, when there's a photo of someone's face on the screen or in my handout, and I can't go and talk to them anymore. They're gone. At that moment, the reality that we're living with all the time is crystal clear, and these words shine most brightly, don't they? If you've been to funerals where the gospel is proclaimed, why do we need to wait for those moments? Jesus would say, here is a moment to face the great enemy that we all face, but to actually flee to a saviour, to a way through it. And I think the biggest thing that surely Jesus would have us do right now, that John would want us to do right now, is to imagine no one else in the room, just you, and Jesus in front of you, who says these words to you, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then Jesus in front of you says, and insert your name here, do you believe this? Do you believe How would you answer? It's possible that you've been around Jesus long enough to know about him, to possibly even agree and like him, but this morning you realise you've not actually believed in him and entrusted yourself to him. Let this be the morning, let this be the moment that you would entrust yourself to Jesus, the Saviour. See, here's the thing, Jesus is not after fans. Um, the Australian Open wrapped up what, last week and uh, I love any sport that's got a ball in it, right? So if it's on TV, if it's got a ball, I'll probably watch some of it. And so I watched some of the Australian Open and I enjoyed it. I cheered some of the people on. I understood kind of what was happening and I was entertained by it. I'm not a tennis tragic at all. Uh, but I can promise you that I won't watch another point, let alone game, set, match for another 12 months until the Australian opens back on. Because there's far too many better sports with balls in them to watch. And in my opinion. But here's the thing. It's possible to come at Jesus like a fan, but he's not interested in fans. He wants followers. It's possible to come at Jesus and be entertained and be intrigued and kind of be near the sidelines, maybe cheer them on, but come back when it suits me. That's not what he calls for. He calls not for fans, but for followers, those who would entrust themselves to him and so now walk with him. Maybe this morning is the first time that you would answer Jesus as he asked that question, do you believe? As Martha did. Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing in him, you might have life in his name, life now, life every day that he will protect and life 
one nanosecond after your body stops breathing. Life fuller than we could imagine. For those of us who have done that, let me leave us with just a couple of questions that I'd encourage you to use as diagnostic questions through the week. How would your life be different if you did not believe that Jesus was the resurrection and the life? If you didn't believe this stuff, if you hadn't entrusted yourself to him, how would your life be different? Would anything be different? Would anything change? Or would it look pretty much exactly the same as the rest of our community who don't believe this at all? Or to spin that question around positively, what about your life is just crazy and nuts to your friends and family who don't believe this stuff? What just doesn't make sense because you do believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? What, what only makes sense because you believe this is not your best life now, but that is to come? What only makes sense because you do live by faith, not blind faith, not, not a leap off the end, but you do follow, you do entrust yourself to this Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Here's another question. As we do this, as we entrust ourselves, none of us, of course, have done that in a way that is fully consistent with what we know to be true. Uh, Jesus is patient, he's gracious. It's by his work alone that we are right, but he calls us to grow in faith. And so what might be different about your life this year as you more fully appreciate Jesus as the resurrection and the life? As has been said, we're at a moment typically where our rhythms, where our routines are are starting again. Kids are back at school, sport is back on, work is crazy, the hobbies are happening, chaos is here. So what might be different this year in your life as you entrust yourself to this Jesus? We are so thankful for the numbers of people that he's drawing along as you have heard. We rejoice. Each year at this time, we do see more people with us. And it is a thing that we actually, over the weeks to come and the months to come, we do see a decline. So people who are here now are here less frequently. How would, how would really following Jesus and believing Jesus change the way that you come at getting to church with your family each week? There's things that will stop you, but it's try and stop me from getting to church. The basic disciplines of speaking to the one that we believe in, of hearing from the one that we believe in, to do that amongst community in small groups. What would be different about your life this year that you might prayerfully Commit to growing in. I'm going to actually pause there right now as I invite the band to come up who will help us not just reflect, but give us an opportunity to believe in Jesus as we sing these words. But I want to give us a moment to reflect on that. What might be different about your life this year as either for the first time or more fully you entrust yourself to this Jesus? Take a moment.
Father God, it's been no accident that we've all found ourselves here hearing the words of your son. Thank you for that work in our life that we might hear the words of him who is the resurrection and the life. Please, might we do more than just hear. Please, might you take these things deep down into our lives. Please, might you meet us where we're at. Give us the gift of faith. For those who have been crying out to you, and it seems as if you are silent, please give the gift of faith. You are good. You do love. You've shown that in the cross. You know what you're doing. Bring us deeper into seeing your glory as you do that. For those who have not yet entrusted themselves to you, please work that great miracle. For those who have recently among us, we rejoice. Please protect them and grow them. For those who have been walking with Jesus many years, may we never grow comfortable with him. Use this time, this series, please, to make us soft to him, uh, to, to, to long to walk with him more and more. And so bring him glory more and more. And we pray this in his name. Amen.